Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. This week I have Carolyn Kelly back. Carolyn is a registered nurse with over 30 years of experience in human health, including in labor and delivery, and in mental health, where she witnessed the power that animal-assisted interventions can play in the healing process. She holds a master's degree in nursing leadership and runs a small mixed-breed companion dog program, Old Mission Retrievers. Along with Laura Sharkey, she is one of the leaders of the co-pilot Pet Dog Breeding Cooperative, which is the Functional Dog Collaborative's first breeding cooperative. In this episode, Carolyn and I are talking about her most recent litter. If you're interested in getting into the nitty-gritty about health testing, mate selection, and some of the hurdles facing mixed-breed breeders, you should enjoy this one. Well, hi, Carolyn. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. Hi, Jessica. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you again. So we've had Carolyn on twice before. Yes. Um, But this is your first time all by yourself. Yeah, right. Um, So I don't remember if we had time before to talk about what dogs you live with, but how many dogs are at your house? Who are they? That um, seems to change fairly often. Uh, Right now I have four. I have Lucy, who is my yellow lab. She is the matriarch of my breeding program. She's six and a half now. And I have Ruby, an unrelated uh, golden retriever mix. And I have Jasper, who um, is a big goofball. He's also a mix. And I have Rose, who I kept from Ruby's first litter. And she is a bearded retriever. She is Lab Golden Poodle Mix, and she's a sweetheart. And I just rehomed, had to spay and rehome Willow, who is Lucy's daughter from her second litter, because she um, had a very small um, mitral valve something or other when they did her echo, even though she's never had a murmur that was detectable, which was interesting and lesson to me because she had no symptoms and no murmur, but she had something on the echo. So I elected that she would be going to a permanent pet home where she is being spoiled rotten across town. But I miss her. <laughs> Let me just make sure that people are are clear that what Carolyn's talking about here is a is a very mild heart disease. So yeah. why why were you having an echo done on her since that's a, an expensive test? Well she was a breeding candidate. I was considering her as a future breeding candidate, and I had already had her pen hip done. She has a 0.21 distraction index. Tight. (laughs) Yes. That was exciting. Um, And she had passed everything else except for eyes. So I I kind of have been doing hips and elbows at a year um, as a first first, um, screening. And so she was almost two. 
And I had been super busy and so didn't do anything else. And it was getting close to thinking about her third heat when she was over two. So anyway, we did an echo and it showed something. So um, because I have four dogs and I think three to four is a good number for me to live with to make sure that I'm giving every single one of them everything they need. I've had as many as six and it's fun, <laughs> but uh, three or four is a good number. So because she wasn't going to be a breeding candidate and I want her to have a forever home before she gets too much older and she's still amenable to adapting, I decided to spay her and rehome her. I know you were telling me that was hard for you at the time. Yeah, it was, it was, it's hard to have dogs come and go out of your life. That's not a normal thing. You know, most of the time, I don't know about normal, normal's a loaded word, but you know, most people get a dog and it's forever. And that's of course what I always did before I became a breeder. But if you want to be serious about breeding, you can't keep every dog that you evaluate as a breeding prospect. I mean, there's an argument you could make, I guess, if you did have as much as you could with guardian homes, but it's tricky. And if you want to have your own breeding dogs in your home, sometimes you're going to raise them and they're not going to turn out to be a candidate. And then the question is, do you keep them forever or do you make room for, for another dog that might be a breeding candidate in the future? So it's really hard because I'm just as attached to all of them as I would be if they weren't breeding dogs. I try to prep myself like knowing that, you know, that they may, I may decide it's a good idea for one to move on in the future, but I've had to do it. I've done it three times now. This was the third dog I've rehomed and I hasn't gotten easier. It's a grieving process every time. So it's been the hardest part of breeding for me. Yeah. I can imagine. I can't imagine Mm -hmm. having to do it, but, um, yeah. I mean, I guess you don't have to, but if I hadn't, I would be stuck where I was. You know what I mean? If I, I right. would change right. the program and go forward um, with evolving my lines, then I don't know. It's hard to do if you just. Yeah. Then if you fill your out. house up with dogs who are not breeding prospects, you then, as you said, you have too many dogs to really take good care of all of them. And I know right. some people do go down that road, but I'm, I like it better when the dogs get enough enough yeah. attention. Yeah. I mean, everyone's, everyone's amount of dog is different. <laughs> they yeah. can manage. Yeah. Some yeah. people can manage a really large number. Um, for us in my house, it's three. Mm-hmm. Three is so. a nice number. Yeah. yeah. Three usually feels good. It depends on the age too. I, I had several yes. young dogs at once and I think if they were uh, more spread out, if you had a couple senior dogs, it would probably be easier. So be easier. Yeah. My two younger ones are almost the same age and that is hard. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of energy and yes. <laughs> all, yes, all of ours are all of ours are some kind of lab or retriever mix, and they tend to be um, not you know really easy to house train and not terrible puppies, but the they chew, <laughs> just chew. <everything>. Yes. <laughs> so yes. it's a constant um, puppy proofing and saving yes. your socks and slippers from destruction. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So I guess we were talking about focusing on one of your litters today, although we may talk about some other litters if they if they come up, because I'm trying to do this thing on the podcast where I talk to people about particular litters as just sort of a way of digging into what it's like to be a breeder who really thinks a lot about health testing and the welfare of the dogs and socializing the puppies and all of that stuff. 
Right. So you and I had had spitballed a couple of, of possibilities. Um, and why don't you tell us about the litter that we decided on? So we decided to talk about my most recent litter. And they were born uh, last March, March of 2022. So they're nine and a half months old now. And that was Lucy, my lab's final third and final litter. She's She was six this year. And she is now spayed and will be with me forever because, just because. And uh, uh, she was bred um, to an outside stud. So I searched and searched and searched and found a stud uh, far away on the West Coast. I'm in Northern Michigan. Um, and I and I did an AI care at home myself. I'm proud to say that it was oh, successful. So and she had, yeah. She had six puppies. I do not have a repro vet anywhere near me. The closest one is at MSU, which is four and a half hours away, which is possible, I suppose. But um, that's a schlep and it's not fun. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I haven't even gone there yet. So I'm hoping that my regular vet, she just opened her own practice and she's mm. going to be doing pen hip testing and she's very supportive. So I'm hoping maybe she'll be doing some more things as we go into the future here, but um, I don't have a repro vet. So I did my own AI. I used, so they, they shipped. Oh yeah. Go ahead. Tell yeah, us about yeah, that. They, yeah. Shipped, they, um, the breeder, um, actually the breeder that I used for that litter is very experienced and does her own collecting and she does her own shipping. And I had, I used, I uh, took, G's uh, midwifery course on timing um, and fertility and her microscope lesson in that course, I will tell you, I'm a nurse. I've been a nurse for a long time and I've had to use microscopes occasionally during practice, not very often, but I did in L&D. We used to do a couple of things with the microscope and triage, but I have always struggled. She explained how to focus that microscope better than anybody has ever <laughs> <laughs> Got it. It's not straightforward, is it? (laughs) No, you have to do things in a certain order. And for whatever reason, it just had never clicked. And uh, I bought a microscope and I learned how to use it. And so I could check uh, sperm motility when the shipment arrived so that I would know that I had something living that I was going through all that bother for. Right. Right. That was pretty cool. It was very alive. um, (laughs) Did you use it to check the state of your female as well to see if she's coming into estrus no i no. didn't the ideal thing for that is progesterone testing and mm, yeah. uh, that's one of the things that um my vet is going to start doing is pro- in-house progesterone testing because we don't have anybody in traverse city right now that that will do it she's hoping to start doing that next year um you can check cytology but i uh, you can you, that only gives you an idea of when you're starting. It doesn't actually you can't really get the ovulation date from that, which is the critical mm-hmm. thing. I would not have been able to do it if I didn't have a male in the house. But I have a male in the house, and I have been through multiple heats with Lucy before. Uh, so he told you. And the males are actually a very reliable predictor. It's kind of incredible the way that they know not just when the female is in heat, but with their behavior, you can tell um, when ovulation has occurred because mm-hmm. it just that there's like a three day period where it becomes a, a frantic, <laughs> um, okay. frantic interest. It goes from interested to trying to, and, and my boy, the male that I live with currently is actually, he's quite 
manageable. Even, I mean, he's, he's, he's happy to be in the bedroom most of the day and get out, you know, for body breaks and everything, but mm. you can totally tell. Um, anyway, I won't go into the details, but you can tell. And that is not the best way. The most reliable way to do ovulation timing is with progesterone testing. But I got between a combination between luck and my male being really reliable, we got the timing right. And we had six puppies. So excellent. Happy. Yeah. So how did you learn how to actually inject the semen? Was there like, a, oh, it was probably in G's course as well. It was. Yep. Uh, there are actually quite a few. Um, I have been really active. Um, ever since I started breeding with um, the Facebook group for that G is one of the admins for, which is the Golden Doodle Breeder Support and Education Group. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's really a fabulous, supportive group of people for the most part. And when I was, I mean, I've learned a ton. You can pretty much get on there anytime, day or night and ask a question and somebody will be there to <laughs> to answer. So I did, I did a combination of my own learning and then watching her video and it's really pretty straightforward. I'm an old L and D nurse, so I'm pretty comfortable with syringes and you should tell <laughs> people what L and D stands for. What's that? You should tell people what L and D stands oh, for. Oh, labor and delivery. Yeah. yeah. That's what I thought, but I yeah. wasn't positive. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, but all right. Yeah, so it's not too hard, really. You just have to have the right equipment and yeah. it's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. No, I Getting know. the dog to hold still which with her, with Lucy, she's, she was completely fine with it. It's not painful or anything like that. She didn't realize what we were doing, but she just always wants to sit down when you're near her so she can get a treat. So you have to yeah. keep her Well, they down. want their face to be near, near your face. Yeah. That's yeah, just wiggly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. What are you doing? <laughs> um, so I didn't mean to get into all that graphic detail about AI. Sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, but this was her third breeding. So you probably didn't have to do, do you even have to do any more health testing at this point? You probably had done everything on her or had you, were there things like eyes that you were following up with? Well, she um, has never had her eyes done. I will confess that. Um, I have never checked her eyes. Um, I've checked now three of her puppy's eyes and they've all been fine. And she's six and a half and hasn't had any problems. Of course, I have DNA testing on her. So I know that she doesn't have any PRA mm. or anything like that. Um, but it would probably be good um, to do a, a, care, a care screening on her at some point to see if she's developing cataracts mm -hmm. so that I know that um, just for the record. And to kind of have that, you know, idea going forward. I won't be doing that anymore. I actually, I could not find anyone. You have to go to an ophthalmologist to get eye testing done, a veterinary ophthalmologist, which is not a terribly common thing. And the closest one of those that I found is three hours away. And during COVID, um, nobody was doing eye screenings at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't for two and a half years. So I've recently had wow. um, four, four dogs in for eye screening, which is the first time I've been able to do it because I started breeding in 18 or 19 and then the pandemic hit. So yeah. And, and, you know, that kind of brings up an, you know, an interesting point. Um, because I think that, you know, I, I may get, you know, I, it's scary to talk about all of this stuff because you feel like if you miss one thing, it's going to be a gotcha moment for whoever, I certainly will never do another breeding without eye screening. But here's the thing with a six year old dog whose temperament is the foundation of my program, <laughs> who has no eye problems at six years old, you know, 
in my mind, it wasn't, it wasn't enough to stop me. So I did it anyway. So people yeah. can judge that. They can say that that's terrible. Um, but I don't know. We all have our own ways of sizing up the risks and benefits of different things. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk about as well, is that I think in some breeds, you worry more about eye problems. In other yeah. breeds, you worry less about eye problems. Or yeah. um, you said she was a Labrador retriever and yeah. that you were able to use genetic testing to mm -hmm. look for the eye disease that can be tested for in labs. Right. right. Um, so you at least knew that. Um, so and what other tests had you, had you done on her? So she had hips and elbows and a cardiac advanced cardiac screening, um, an echo. And, um, what am I forgetting? Thyroid? I, no, I've never done Not any no thyroid lab. testing that hasn't, that hasn't I, been. I talk to radar. Doberman people a lot. Yeah. Okay. Do thyroid. Okay. So people who are listening to the show should not assume that just because I'm throwing test possibilities at Carolyn, <laughs> that it means that those are things that she should have done. I should be yeah. careful about that. I don't people assume that because I'm a geneticist, I know, but it's mm -hmm. different for every breed. What, you know, what mm -hmm. is relevant is, mm -hmm. is very different. So, and the stud for this litter, I actually chose, um, because he was, he had absolutely everything you could possibly have. He had um, excellent pen hip scores, 0.26 mm -hmm. and 0.21. He had good elbows. He had thyroid testing. He had um, obviously all the DNA stuff. That's that's pretty. That's that's pretty. That's sort of the easiest one to do. So that that's you don't find too. Yeah, many I think every that almost that. everyone does that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he had patellas. Uh, everything you could possibly imagine. An advanced what, what cardiac. What is he? He's a poodle. He's a poodle. Yeah. So there was nothing missing in his health panel, which was mm -hmm. great and helps me avoid gotcha moments. <laughs> but I how mean, did it, you, um, it's valuable you... to me and I don't mean to make it sound like I don't care about it. I do. And I believe in doing all of it, but I just find that. I don't know. I, I could talk about that all day. I won't go down that road. It's, it's really hard the way that, um, you know, you get attacked online. It, there's a certain group, a couple different groups of people who, when you breed mixes, if they can find one thing in the record somewhere that you didn't do, you're an evil person, you know, and a person who shouldn't be allowed to own dogs. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. I like the idea of having some perspective on the fact that each breeder is going to look at a really complex situation. Mm -hmm. Um, like no eye where testing is this during dog COVID. coming from right or the the eye test not being available. there's no eye testing during covid so should i not do the last breeding that i have an opportunity to do on a six-year-old dog because i really didn't want to breed her again after that she's getting you know she's doing fine with it but you know three and yeah, three and get six older, years sure. old she's old too, you know and so it was like well i'm gonna do it anyway if, if, you know, we've got a cataract problem, I'm going to find it because I'm going to be testing her offspring. And if something crops up, then we'll know and we'll adjust. But her temperament is the foundation of my program. She's something I really, um, she's got a lot of resilience that I'm really trying to capture. So that was pretty important to me to do that last breeding. Tell us about the resilience. So Lucy is just, um, she's just a dog you can't freak out. You know, she's always been that way. Um, 
you can take her anywhere. You know, we've traveled with her. She she can be off leash. She's a sniffer. She sometimes will be distracted by smells, but she always comes back. She never runs away. She's not interested in taking off. She likes kids. She likes other dogs. She likes everybody in the world as her new best friend. She's not scared of new environments. She's not scared of fireworks. She's not scared of being alone. She's not scared of being together. She loves riding in the car, you know, and all of that in one dog is not easy to find in in the breeding world so she's um it's really important to me to to capture that and and bring it forward in my program because she's that's kind of the reason i started breeding is to create dogs with that kind of resilience because it's just so nice when you have a pet that you don't have to worry about you never have to worry about her reacting badly in any given situation and that's just awesome you know and i want to none of my dogs are like that no (laughs) Right. I would love to have a dog like that. <laughs> right. And you know, this song, this is probably, I mean, edit it out if it's evil, but if you had a dog like that and they got cataracts when they were eight or nine, would you say that dog should never have existed? <laughs> like, I don't think that's how most pet owners think. And, and I think that, you know, on my soapbox, we are so caught up on the idea that somehow if we do enough of this testing, we're going to create perfect dogs that don't ever have any health problems. And I have yet to see evidence of that. And I don't think it exists in people. I don't think it exists that you have perfect animals that have no issues. I mean, you're going to have some, you know, and every, you know, you're going to have, but you're never going to be able to get to the point where you can a hundred percent predict that nothing is ever going to go wrong. So it's all kind of a, a numbers game of what am, what am I willing to risk? I, I don't want to risk life-threatening things, which is why, like, when I got the result that there was a heart issue, no way. You know, immediate, because I don't know what that's about. And it, if that's the kind of, with her, it'll probably never affect her. We would never know she had that if I hadn't done that test. And she's probably going to live a perfectly normal life. But if there's something there that's going to perpetuate itself in my program, that's going to lead to early loss of life and heartbreak for people. I don't want to do that. But cataracts in old age, you know, I don't Something know. Something that can be fixed with surgery as well. Yeah. yeah, And managed and lived with. And, you know, certainly a blind young dog or something is a tragedy, but um, yeah. Yeah. And so to, just to frame that a little bit, um, because I know there's, so there's, there is conversation online that I have seen of people saying that the functional dog collaborative doesn't feel that health testing is important. And I, I just, right. <laughs> I don't agree. So, I, of, of course I think we, we think it's important. Of course we yeah. think it's important. Right. Mm-hmm. It is, it is incredibly important, but you can't, I think part of what you're saying is that you can't just you can't do all of the tests and then have these sort of black and white, you know, obvious answers to what you do and then have a guarantee of a healthy animal. It's complex. You have to think about the situation, what what test is appropriate, think about what you actually get about the results, right. um, make complex and decisions, yeah. and then things happen. Right. And ideally, you do all of the tests. And you get all passing results and you also have an amazing dog that has the perfect temperament and has no other health issues like allergies or, you know, nothing and everything's perfect and you move forward. And 
And I suppose you could make an argument that you should never breed a dog unless you have that situation. But I'd like to know, you know, um, if that ever really exists a hundred percent of the time. I don't know. Well, we've been talking about transparency too. Yeah. Right. Like how often do people say that that is the case when it's not actually the case? Right. Right. Or they just gloss over the details or they're breeding dogs that have a lot of cancer, which has no testing right now, you know, or they're breeding dogs that are brachycephalic and that's a whole other, you know, ethics issue that you could talk about. So I don't mean to say that there are no breeders who have hundred percent passing health test dogs. And I think that's my, that that's the ideal, but I think that um, it's more complicated than most people realize. Yeah. I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so you, but you did find a really lovely sire, a really yeah. lovely stud to yeah. use. Yep. Um, how did you, how did you find him? So that's another thing I hear is that it can be really hard to find poodle owners who are interested in working with crossbreeders. So how did that, how'd that go? Well, this is another mixed breed breeder and there are lots Mm. of mixed breed breeders that own poodles. Um, that's hard to find show poodle owners that want to work with. Um, although there are some, the, one of the, oh, I won't name names because they'll get attacked, but there are a few (laughs) that have champion poodles that we work with. So that's not unheard of, but most of the time there are other mixed breed breeders who have been breeding poodles for a while. So they're not part of the breed club. They're not part of the show world. They have a program that is open to mixing. And this is, this is how I found that breeder. I want to provide a quick interjection here to frame the upcoming discussion in the next couple of minutes of this interview. For those of you who are not familiar with the system of breed clubs in the United States, in order to seek American Kennel Club registration, a breed's enthusiasts must form a parent breed club. These clubs provide guidance for their breed, maintain the written standard, maintain health testing recommendations, and also provide a place for people who love the breed to connect. It is these AKC-affiliated breed clubs that Carolyn is going to start speaking about here. For most, if not all of them, their culture holds that breeding mixed-breed dogs is unethical. Of course, individuals who are members of a breed club may feel differently, but as a whole, that is almost always the culture, and it's the interaction with people who hold those beliefs that Carolyn is going to describe here. And so interesting as well, I think, that the dog that you found that tested so well and had a lovely personality mm-hmm. also is a dog that has been bred outside of the of the breed club. And I'm yeah. not saying that in any way to say anything bad about the breed club, but to point out that there are good breedings happening outside of it as well. I believe so. I don't... For me, it's tricky to talk about because I I have had such uh, traumatic negative experiences with breed club folks that I, it's hard for me to even imagine wanting to have anything to do with a breed club. <laughs> I mean, I know there are lovely breed clubs. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about perhaps like the Poodle Club of America and some other very traditional breed clubs. I mean, I went into breeding... Uh, not knowing that much about the dog world. And I have had a uh, trial by fire over the last five years learning about um, the politics 
of the dog world. Mm. And um, as a person who's been in healthcare for a long time, I kind of expected it would be more like veterinarians and that I spent a a lot of time and energy um, working to show my personal veterinarian what I was doing and to collaborate with her because she's here in my community and I always taken my dogs to her and I love her and respect her. And, you know, I thought, um, that was whose respect I was trying to earn and I did. And, you know, it's been really cool, but the whole online, uh, dog world is, um, just brutal. It's really brutal. It's there's a lot of cyberbullying. There's a lot of dehumanization, you know, things that people will say that they would never say to me in person. I mean, I'm a person. <laughs> I'm like a nice person. You know, yeah. I I'm a, a nurse. I'm a mother. I have a family. I'm like a normal person that you would meet in any of their contacts and probably at least be willing to hear my thoughts about why I'm doing what I'm doing. But I mean people find out what I breed and it's like, you know, I might as well be like, I don't even know what a comparison would be. Some reviled and unsocially acceptable group that it is okay to just Mm -hmm. harass and be mean to and called names and say things about my dogs being ugly and hideous and that I don't have the right to own dogs and that, you know, I have no business doing any of this. And so, you know, even if, even if they were right about breeding practices and I was completely wrong and it was true that the only correct way to breed a dog is the way they say to do it. And that I, if I actually was hurting dogs by breeding them the way I'm doing, they still don't have, they still shouldn't be talking to people like that. That is not helpful or acceptable. So and it's I know not constructive. Everybody. It's not going to no, get them what they want, help. which presumably right. is improved dog welfare, right? Right. That's not going right. to convince anyone to do anything any differently. Right. So when you say, you know, good breedings are happening outside of the breed club, I don't know what happens in the breed club. I'm not in it and I am not applying to join. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that, I know that's tricky. And I know that you, um, really are are very interested and you do a great job of being diplomatic and trying to bring everybody together to talk about things. But it's really hard when you're the target of a lot of hatred to stay really objective. Well, and I'm really sorry you went through all that too. Yeah. No one should have to. (laughs) I'm sorry you are going through all that. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. And I'm sorry to be complaining. But. No, I think it's, I don't see it as complaining. I see it as there are people who listen to this podcast who don't know that that is going on. Yeah. Um, and there are people who are listening to this podcast who participate in that, who don't think of, who hopefully will listen to this conversation and realize that the people that they're attacking are humans. Yeah, well, they'll probably just say, well, she bred a dog without eye testing. So obviously she's evil. But, you know, <laughs> The, the word ethics, you know, I love the term ethical breeding. Ethics are not defined by breed clubs. They're not defined by, they're defined by your own personal moral compass. And so anybody who thinks that I haven't spent a whole bunch of time examining myself and my motivations and my moral compass and my personal sense of ethics about why I'm doing what I'm doing is just wrong. So I I feel that 
producing amazing pets in a way that is um, great for the breeding dogs and great for the people who are getting the pets and, and helping to try to make it so that there's a way to do that with mixing outside of the traditional way and helping um, you know myself and other breeders move that forward. I think that's a worthy cause. So I'm working pretty hard at it. And, and I feel I sleep okay at night. I just, um, am tired of being called names online. So every single dog I will be breeding going forward has had eye testing and barring another pandemic that won't happen again. <laughs> and uh, two that I just did, including Lucy's granddaughter had perfect eyes and I will do them annually, even though I have to drive three hours one way to get it. Yeah. Done. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize, too, how hard, you know, again, health testing is very important. It's not a it's not just a box to check. No, it's not an easy box to check either. Like it can be it can be challenging to get it done and not to mention expensive. So, right. um, Yeah. Recognizing that is important. Doing pen, hip and elbows. I go five hours one way to get a lower rate and it's six hundred and fifty dollars a dog. Yeah. Mm hmm. Which, you know, is not, that's not the end of the world, but it's, it's a, it's a thing. If you have it's to plan thing. it, I don't know. <laughs> I guess if you're independently wealthy, that's no big deal, but it's, it's something to me. So, yeah. Okay. So you have, um, mom who has a lovely personality. Mm-hmm. We have dad who. Um, and so actually, what is dad's resilience like? Do you know? So we talked about how he he's um, comes up gold stars on all his health testing. Yeah. What do so, you know about his personality? Oh, so this is something that, you know, the entire breeding world needs to figure out better ways to evaluate this because um, we we don't have a formal system. I want I want formal temperament scoring more than I do, you know, eye tests, because that's what uh, I'm obsessed with in my breeding program is trying to make sure that we're um, creating these amazing resilient dogs. So uh, uh, all I could do was um, talk to his guardian home. I did talk to his guardian home. I talked to his breeder. I talked to people who had puppies from him in the past and get my own independent sense, including video. I saw a video of him in different environments. So I think he's a pretty great dog. Yeah, it's um, that would be my soapbox is how hard it is to assess personality. It's really um, hard. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and you know that yeah. 90%, 95% when you're looking for a stud dog, oh, he's sweet. He's very sweet. Okay. What? What? By sweet? What is your definition of sweet? Yeah, the barking and lunging is not a big deal. (laughs) It's it's fine. It's very easily manageable if you keep him on a leash, at a distance from the other dogs. Yeah. Right. Right. We don't have thunderstorms here all that often. So, anyways. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a problem I'd like to see solved, but there's not an obvious solution to it. Um, the the working dog folks have mm-hmm. have agreed on a standard, but it involves a trained someone who is trained coming and evaluating the dog, um, and you know, and then they they have to have all the equipment, and it's it would be a lot for the pet dog people to to take on. So yeah. 
Well, we're working on in the co-op. Um, we we really want to have sea uh, bark results on puppies we mm. produce, um, and sea bark results on parents. And that's not, but that's not a hundred percent or anything. Of course, no. the, sh- the show folks will say that if you don't work the dog and you don't show the dog, then you don't know its temperament and you haven't proven its temperament. And that that there's some, I mean, there's validity in that in the sense that. If you are staying home with the dog all the time, then you right. don't have a good sense of how the dog is performing. I think it's interesting. This is an interesting thing. I don't know if this is, it's not really profound, but it's something I was thinking about the other day. So there's there's knowing the dog's temperament and there's proving it, right? So proving right. means that you have Proof. Was that a squeaky toy? <laughs> My husband just let all the dogs in because oh. so I had the door closed so it would be quiet. And then apparently the dogs were standing outside the door being like, I can hear her talking in there. And uh, <laughs> so he let them in so they would shut up. And one of them immediately ran and was like, I found the squeaky toy. Yeah, thought it was. Were a they were, So the question is, did they want to come in for me or did they want to come in for the squeaky toy? That's the real question. I'm just the food lady. That's all they, they look at me and they think food might fall out of me. And so they follow have, me around. Um, <laughs> yep. I have one dog who's obsessed with food, one dog who's obsessed with toys mm. and one who's happy to be obnoxious about either of those things. Yeah. Mine are all food obsessed. Yeah. They like toys too, but that's not, it's not how we motivate them. Um, so I was just talking about proving. Proving, yes. Knowing. So, so for instance, my dog, Lucy, who's six and a half years old, right? Who I've traveled across the country with. I've taken t- to how many different large public spaces, private public spaces, beaches, parks, cars, other people's cars, strangers' houses. I don't know anything you could think of that you would do with a pet you know, including crowded spaces, like what you would encounter at a dog show, you know, anything I've done. And I know having known her since she was eight weeks old. And now that she's, you know, when I started breeding her, when she was four, I, I know her temperament. I mean, I have a pretty good sense of how resilient she is. If I were to show her in a dog show, I know how she would act. I would have to train her not to try to cross the room to kiss everybody and get pets. But other than that, she'd be happy. Right. So how, but I haven't proven it. Right. So I I haven't proven it. I know. And I'm so ethically for myself because I'm hard on myself and I'm actually an ethical person and I want to do the right thing. I know that she is the way she is. And you know, another dog like Jasper, the male I have is pretty fearful. You know, he's mm-hmm. nervous around new people and I'm probably never going to breed him because he's probably not what I want. And I know this. So the question is, is it really knowing it or is it proving it to someone else? And and it, because, because the purebred world and the ethical breeding community online talks about proving dogs so much, I've just been thinking about what do they mean by that word? You know, it's like, if I proved it to myself as the breeder, is that good enough? Or, or do I have to prove it to someone else because you really can't trust me? There's an inherent, you can't trust my, well, yes. And so, and I, but I think the lack of trust in some cases, it's because we think the other person could be, you know, an unethical jerk, but in some cases it's because we think they may 
they might not realize. Yeah. Right. And so you and right. I were just joking about that earlier where we were saying that, you know, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, the dog is super mm-hmm. sweet because the right. person just doesn't have the depth of right. knowledge to know, like, well, it's important that he ride in a car right. and it's important that he go right. to a crowded space. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But so that's where it gets tricky, though. It, that's what I'm saying in the dog world. Mm-hmm. There's no like there's no test where you can demonstrate and there's no universal agreement about what is I mean, the breed standards have mentions of temperament, but even the breed standards, I don't find to be overwhelmingly descriptive about temperament. A lot of those words you can interpret different ways. And so there's sort Mm -hmm. of this general understanding of what it means, but right. Different people could interpret them different ways for sure. Right. Yeah. A problem I would certainly, it sounds like you're trying to address it your way. And I, and I support that and would love to, to try to help with that through the FTC. Well, it's, hey, um, I'm I'm open to other problem. ways. I'm I'm open to any kind of way people can figure. I just want you to come up with uh, some DNA tests for sociability and fear, <laughs> and then yeah. we can just have a black and white answer. <laughs> yeah. We'll know which puppies to keep, and it'll be easy. I'll I'll get you that tomorrow. All right, good. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's. I think I think starting with Seabark is a good way to start. I think it's you know it's sort of the best sort of most accessible approach that we have. Uh, mm-hmm. there's definitely some problems with it, but there's no perfect, there's no perfect solution. There isn't. And as you've said, dog shows aren't the perfect solution either. That shows that a dog can handle a lot of things that we would like a dog to be able to handle, but there's plenty of other things it doesn't test. Right. So. Doesn't test separation anxiety. And it, and if that's the environment it's trained to deal with, that's one thing, you know, yeah. that's not everything. Yeah. And yeah. you can do a lot to get through one day. You can do yes. medication. You can do all kinds yes. of things to get through one day, one hour, whatever they need to do. Not that people are doing that. I, I'm not saying they are. but Well, and it can just it, be excellent fun. handling too, right? It right. can just be, I see that the dog is about to snap at the judge and I can distract the dog mm-hmm. for that second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, and yeah, they're just, there is no gold standard for assessing personality or temperament to right. Right. use your term. Um, there just isn't, it's just hard. And there, there are problems with every approach that we can take. So it's good that you're, it's good that you did all of those things. Yeah. Um, I would love to see more behavior courses out there, more dog body language courses for breeders yeah. and more yeah. breeders recognizing the importance of that. Yeah. And then there's, of course, the whole socialization factor that is yes. just confounds everything and confuses it because, like, I've joked, but it, I don't remember if I said this in another podcast because my memory is not as good as it used to be, but, like, I don't train my dogs because I want to know how they're going to be without training. But, I mean, I do socialize the puppies. That's not what I'm talking about. I just, I'm, I'm not a dog trainer. Laura, my partner in the co-op, is a dog trainer. I'm not a formal dog trainer. I kind of work with management more than training and I probably do more training than I realize, but you know, how a dog is raised can impact it so significantly. And if it's had training, you know, counter conditioning about fear that could have like, you know, my, my guy who's was pretty fearful when he's younger, he's really doing great, but I mean, I've worked with him a lot and I don't, I want and how all that fits together and how it fits together with the time they're raised and the environment they're raised. And 
It's complicated. I figure yes. you just assume that everything is genetic. And then as soon as they're born, you start trying to do everything you possibly can to, you know. Then, then everything's environment. Yes. Right. Right. Yes. I think that's a good, good saying. Yeah. I like that too. Um, both of those things are very important. So I always, you know, we like to talk about health testing, but socializing the puppies is another massively mm -hmm. important, mm -hmm. important thing, which we should probably talk about how you do that. And maybe we could talk about that now, but I feel like it's, it's out of, out of the chronology of what happened. So we were at you, AI, your, your bitch. And, <laughs> um, and then how was, how was the pregnancy? How was the birth? How was all of that stuff? Great. I mean, she does very well. She's, she, she's um, not a maiden. So no, but you know what? I haven't seen in my dogs so far, I haven't seen a terrible difference between first time and other times. Mm -hmm. um, pretty consistent. Um, she was good uh, with her first litter. She was great. I, I This time she's a little older. She's a little uncomfortable. The last few days, she didn't sleep very well. Last couple nights um, kept me up quite a bit, just kind of restless. But other than that, she was comfortable the entire time. Has a great appetite. It's a happy girl pretty much unfazed, extra naps, no problem. <laughs> and um, she had the puppies during the day, which is a wonderful gift. So you're not staying up all night to kick things off. Yes. It went quickly. This time was the first time I had a puppy that really, um, the first puppy was born kind of not breathing immediately. And I had to do a little bit of resuscitation. She was very small. She was almost half the size of the other five, um, but she did fabulous. I mean, as soon as she was awake, she never looked back, never needed one bit of help or supplementation or anything, just a total little spark plug and <laughs> no problems at all. She, ended, she was almost caught up in size by the time they were four or five weeks old. So interesting. Yeah. I wonder if she just had a crappy spot in the universe yeah. or something. It, it seemed like that. Like it was a yeah. placental issue of some kind. She just wasn't yeah, getting yeah. enough nutrition or yeah. something. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, the whelping was pretty easy. Lucy's a good mom. I don't have to do a lot of... So I, I do a lot of watching over, um, but it's mostly... I was talking about this with another breeder in the co-op recently. I think it's mostly me. <laughs> I probably could leave and it would be okay, but yeah, yeah. I do a lot of tending, you know? Yeah. I, I uh, keep everything kind of spotless and, and she has a tendency to not want to drink water and I get, mm. I want her to be really hydrated. So I'm yeah, always, she's going to be nursing. Yeah. yeah. Right. Hydration is super important for a milk supply. So I'm always kind of preparing her these special soupy mixes of yummy things to eat slash drink and um but yeah puppies grew i i weigh puppies twice a day at first to make sure that they're putting on weight and if everybody's doing good after three or four days i usually have gone down to once a day and then eventually just every few days if you because you can visibly tell that they're eating and gaining and moving and growing but those first few days you want to make sure that everybody's getting enough to eat and but it's um I have a I have puppies born in our bedroom 
in the corner because it's an indoor space with no drafts and the whelping box fits there so that I can be up and down out of bed as needed. And they're in there for the first two weeks. And the only people that go in there, are myself and my husband. So anybody else in the household kind of stays away and the other dogs are completely away. And I, I really big believer that, um, that very beginning, you don't want the mom to be stressed. You know, you don't want her feeling like, like she's being invaded or she has to be protective or anything at all. So, and she's, both of my girls that I've had puppies with so far, they're protective in the sense that if one of the other dogs were to try to come right in the room in the first two weeks, they would not be happy. <laughs> but after they're fine with people that they know, and they're even fine with people that they don't know after the first few days, but I don't really, I don't really do that. My, I've read a lot about puppy socialization and my theory is that you want to gradually increase the amount of stimulation and kind of stress, but not to the point where it goes past the threshold of stress. Yes. yes. That's kind of the way I look at it. So yeah, that sounds exactly right to me. I try to kind of watch how they're doing. And I, those first couple of weeks when it's just about growing and putting on weight and uh, learning to crawl around the box, I try to start adding some noise in the room um, after the first week, but it's not not a lot. And I keep want to keep her stress level low. Because my theory at that point is the less cortisol she's making and the more calm she is, the more good immunities they're getting and they're eating and growing. And that's kind of the goal of the first two weeks. So they're in the bedroom that time, during that time. Cool. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that because there's a lot of debate these days about early neural stimulation. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's, for those who don't know, mm -hmm. that's a whole program where you start handling the puppies and giving them these sort of slightly aversive experiences, but not, not too stressful. Right. But when they're quite young, you know, their first week of age um, and not everybody it, you, time was, if you were a really good breeder, you definitely did it. And now people are starting to think in some cases it might be too much. So I was, I like, I like your approach of sort of watching the puppies and seeing what you think they need. Yeah. And I mean, I do handle them. So it, they're, they're being weighed twice a day, which involves me picking them up and putting them on a scale. So, um, in the beginning, I try, I put, I, it's funny, I have these things, I don't even think about it, but when they're brand, brand new, I tend to put a blanket down on the scale so it's not cold. And then sure. later I'm like, okay, we'll go with the cold because I'm always trying to think about, you know, a little bit more adversity as we go along, but not yeah. an overwhelming amount. So yeah. I think like the first week I have a blanket on there and then later I take the blanket off and they're sitting on this cold metal scale each time they get weighed. And I, I do things like, play with their feet and touch them and turn them over. When I weigh them, I do turn mm -hmm. them on their back, which is part of ENS. I don't do formal ENS, mm -hmm. but I think that um, they're getting handled. And whether it is exactly the right amount or too much, I wish someone could tell me. I try to watch and, and sense, yeah. you know, that they're, they're exploring and developing and don't seem stressed, but I don't, I don't frankly know if I touch their feet I more think, in the first, is that going to be yeah. better? Don't, is right. that going to be better? I don't know. I think in the same way that we would love to have a genetic test that tells you uh, so that you can test and know how sociable a dog is going to be. Right. I think in exactly the same way, we're never going to really know exactly what to do when right. they're tiny, 
to be to sort of set them up perfectly. Right. Um, it's the joy of it. If it if they were little robots, it wouldn't be yeah. <laughs> right. Program them correctly. <laughs> Right, right. There's um one of my favorite books, Citine by C.J. Sherry. It was written in like the 60s or 70s, and and she has this world in which these people like um they're sort of they're genetic clones of whatever, so they know the genetics perfectly, and then they have them listen to tapes because it was back you know it's tapes back then. They listen to tapes at night to sort of program them, and so they're sort of completely controlled. And uh, people have manuals, and uh. I just loved it. Like I was like, that's that's what we need. <laughs> <laughs> so we need to be able to completely control dogs just like that. A hundred percent understand the genetics. A hundred percent understand the environment. Have a manual that says in this situation, this animal will get upset by this. Right. Perfect. That's it. Except that not would be going boring. to happen. That would be yes. boring. Yes, it would be boring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of the whole thing is that it's kind of a miracle, isn't it? That when it works out. So yeah, that's part of the fun. Yeah, you want to do the best you can, but it's just, again, it's never, I mean, it comes back to the genetic testing question too. It's just never going to be perfect. You just do the best you can. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So do you want me to tell more about what I do with the puppies or? or Yeah. So what happened? Yes, definitely. What happens? I don't want to go too long. I can talk a lot. So you have to tell me (laughs) too much. Um, No, I just got my husband to bring up a charger for my computer. I thought my computer would be fine, but apparently the battery is older than I thought it was. And it was not going to be fine. So I am good. I'm good. Um, yeah, I would love to hear more about what you do with the puppies as they get older. And then I would also love to hear more about sort of how this particular litter per- turned out, like what personalities were in the litter. So they stay in the uh, bedroom for two to three weeks. And my mm-hmm. rule has been when they start climbing out of the whelping box, start trying to climb out of the whelping box and get to where they're going to succeed, then I move them to the puppy room. And mm-hmm. I am thrilled to have a room. Um, which used to be my dining room, which is now the puppy room, which <laughs> doesn't always have puppies in it. I have only had one litter in the last year. So most of the time it's just an extra dog room, but um, it's the puppy room when we have puppies. And it's really cool because the kitchen is on one side and the living room is on the other and the TV is out there, which is on half the time. And the mm-hmm. sound of the kitchen is right there. And then it also has a door to the outside where I was able to put a fence around a small area that's kind of a safe area um, away from the other dogs. So when they get to be, they move in there at about three weeks. And by the time they're four and a half or even four, they get to go outside. And then they, they start going outside a lot, like every couple hours by the time they're five to six weeks old. And then they're pretty much going outside to go potty. By the time they go home and it's far from hundred percent, but it's, they have got the idea because when they're, they have kind of a rhythm, you know, where they eat and then they sleep. And then when they wake up, we go outside and they, they uh, go potty. So yeah, socialization wise. I mean, I, I put a lot of focus on that. It's kind of like my thing because uh, for me, that's, that's one of the hardest parts of having a puppy is, you know, my house is all carpeted and if you have to spend three months potty training, that's really stressful. So I work hard on that for people. Cause I think it's great that, to have them set up to already kind of be really primed to know where to go. Yeah. And then we have, we have crates in there after five weeks that are optional. So they pretty much by the time they go home are used to sleeping in the crate. I start closing, nice. start closing the door for longer periods when they're already asleep. 
I close the door so that it's not stressful, but then they wake up and they're in there with the door closed. My goal, some breeders I know, and maybe I will do this with the next litter if I'm ambitious, will really actually have them sleeping individually in crates overnight. Mm. And I haven't quite gotten there yet, but I do have them sleeping in crates with the door closed in groups of two or three. So they're very acclimated to the crate. And I've heard good feedback from the puppy families that it's not much of a transition. You know, they pretty much are okay with sleeping in the crate. And not everybody wants to crate train, but I'm a big believer with a small puppy that that's a great safe place to be. So having them have that exposure and have it be a comfortable place where they want to go is important. And then I just try to have as many people over as possible and do as many different things as possible. Just all kinds of stuff with surfaces, funky paper, crinkly stuff, loud noises, thunderstorms. Um, If we don't, you know, if we have a thunderstorm, that's cool. I play thunderstorm videos on the TV and gradually increase the sound until they respond and then turn it down and then back up. I'll do that while they're eating or having a treat sometimes so that they associate it with something positive. And with that, again, I, I don't know the exact correct way, but what I do is if I see that they're actually afraid of anything, then I back off and then try again so that they're not being freaked out, but they're having exposure and realizing that, that it's okay. And then they can have uh, um, kind of doing that building resilience kind of thing. They can, they can get past, if they get a little bit spooked by something, they can get past that. And then the next time it's easy. That's the goal. And most of the time there's not a lot of negative response. They tend to be happy at that age to do whatever (laughs) meet whoever you bring around and yeah try to have as many this is what I do with my program is during that time from five to eight weeks my house is like please anybody that wants to come over that wants to meet the adult dogs that wants to see where the puppies are growing if you might want a puppy sometime five years from now now's your chance because the puppies (laughs) meet as many people as possible during that time and I try to you know, have lots and lots of different types of folks come over, kids, all kinds of stuff. So perfect. How do you deal with um, taking them off property uh, when they're so young that their immune systems are still vulnerable? So I I take them in the car a few Mm -hmm. times um, on a car ride and I take them to the vet and Mm -hmm. I do not take them out in public. I like, I wouldn't take them to the beach or a park or, or something like that. I have thought about, um, doing like a, I would need to have covered strollers and we could maybe walk in public. Um, but I don't do a lot of field trips now. Mine have been going home at eight weeks. If I had them longer and I have had a couple that stayed longer, I started doing more, but when I have eight, six, eight, 10 puppies. Um, that would be quite a production. So the car ride on a field trip. Yeah. 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 I send puppy families home with all kinds of information about how to start doing that right away. As soon as they're adjusted to being in the house after a few days, that's, they're still in that early socialization window for at least another month and a half, hopefully. So, um, I try to get them to the point where they've been, So I kind of think of it as, you know, from the time they're born till that end of that 14 to 16 week socialization period, you want their world to be expanding, right? Mm -hmm. So you want them to be having more and more and more experiences that are positive and that they 
cope with and are great. <laughs> and I figure my job as the breeder up till eight weeks is to get them to the point where they're, they're acclimated to all kinds of surfaces. They're acclimated to all kinds of outdoors, indoors, car rides, veterinarian, hmm. new people. And then these puppy families really need to pick up the ball and say, okay, now we're going to go do some, we're going to go to the next level and go to lots of different kinds of public spaces. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe some people yeah. would think that's inadequate, but that's what I've been up to. No, I think that's fair. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I talked to one breeder who took puppies places in a, in a, a little, um, a little red wagon, but I think you have to trust that they're not going to just jump out. They would totally which... jump out. Yes. <laughs> Totally. So, like seven, so eight what we're puppies, but oh my goodness, <laughs> a little red wagon would be a funny joke. <laughs> so what would what were some of the personalities you had in this litter? So this litter was fun. I had I had six puppies. Um, there were two that had a little bit of a what seemed like a little bit of anxiety about new people that they started mm. having. Um, between six and seven weeks. Um, and um, I talked to the, I, I placed those two carefully um, and talked to the people who were taking them about that and about the fact mm -hmm. that they would need to be aware of that and make sure that they did not, one, skimp on the socialization and two, didn't, um, overdo it <laughs> because those, right. I think those puppies needed, um, to be advocated for. They weren't, it wasn't outrageous, but they were most of the time I'm used to these hyper social dogs. I mean, most of my dogs are new people, you know? Yeah. And these two were having a little bit of like, mm, who are you? You know, I don't know you. And yeah. And that was, that was, um, different. Um, one, out of the six was extraordinarily bold, probably the boldest, bravest seeming, just really, really, really uh, confident puppy I've ever raised. And mm. he's the one that's with Laura. Mm. And we both are very interested to see how that turns out because he's, he's a little bit more, I mean, in the old fashioned, like if you're doing the Volhard test, he's more, he tested more on the, what they used to call dominant side of things, mm -hmm. you know, just a little bit, not, not a lot of handler focus, but just a lot more, um, independent. Mm -hmm. So she's been, she's he, so far, he's doing amazing. Just really, really mm -hmm. cool dog. So we'll see. Um, and the others were kind of in that kind of what I'm used to, which is just the middle of the road, laid back, happy, go lucky, love to meet everybody. So I placed two of these puppies with trainers as potential future breeding prospects. So I'm excited about that because they're, um, I'm getting perspective on them. I haven't had before having a trainer nice. on them. Yeah. 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 And, and that's a great way for trainers to contribute to the next generation is to work with breeders and. Yes. That, I mean, that would be. Guarded, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if, if we had more trainers that would be, would do guardian home stuff, that would be amazing for the dog world because it, they have a different, they have such a good perspective of seeing yeah. lots of different other kinds of dogs and um, being able to understand behavior in a way right. that it's hard to right. find in the average pet home. So, yeah. And so when we talk about knowing that a dog is a good pet versus proving it, 
I think right. if, if I were talking to a trainer who lived with a dog and they told me that the dog was a good cat, good pet, um, I would probably trust their judgment. Although I would also know that they had probably raised the dog particularly well. So right. it would be then the question that, of how much right, is genetics whole, versus whole how much is environment, right? Factor. How would the dog have done? Yeah. How would right. the dog have done elsewhere? Right. Right. Um, but I would certainly, but that's, I mean, that's still, the dog has the potential to be genetically. It has the t potential to be that wonderful. Right. So right. Right. that is a useful piece of information for sure. Right. So The worst case scenario would be a dog that even when raised by a trainer, <laughs> <laughs> then you know if it's a then mess you know. then you know <laughs> then you know <laughs> nope <laughs> probably not the one so Agreed. what else should i ask you about this litter i, that I haven't know. asked you <laughs> did i did i answer your questions did we you did. did we okay good did. yeah i um i hope i didn't uh complain too much about online bullying it's been it's 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 tough it's tough. And the dog world is a very opinionated space. It is. That's <laughs> true. Are very sure of themselves. About they are. And they it's interesting right. how there's islands, right? Where people mm -hmm. in the one island are very sure of one thing and people in another island are very sure of another thing. Yeah. You know, I, I think, yeah, I don't know. I kind of psychologically, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not, I'm not very sure. I've, I've had to spend a lot of time trying to learn and think and examine and question myself. And I've lost a lot of sleep, you know, since I became a breeder, wondering if I'm doing the right thing and if it's worth it. And if there's, if there's somebody who would be better, or is this not my place or, you know, I'm new and I'm trying to do it in a different way. And I think that there's so much, um, apparent certainty. This is my theory. Because a lot of people feel like that. Like, I have a feeling that, because it's, it's a huge responsibility. Like, yeah. it's, it, it feels like a huge responsibility. I mean, you're, you're, there's all this moral stuff around dogs, you know, dogs in shelters, dogs that are homeless, so many, everybody has so, such intense feelings about dogs. You know, if, and so when you wade into that world and try to say, hey, I'm going to do this, <laughs> you know, it takes it. There's a lot of stuff out there to make you doubt yourself and want to run the other way and be unsure. And I see these the folks who are kind of traditional you know, and have this kind of black and white list of if we prove the dogs and if we do all the health testing and if we breed to the standard, then we're good. We don't need to think, we know that we have the moral permission to breed the dogs. And we and are doing- it's not your fault. And whatever happens is not your fault right. if you've done all these things. Right, because you checked off the list. And so if you produce a bad dog, it's not your fault. If the puppy owners aren't happy, it's not your fault. If something goes wrong and you're bitch dies. You did everything you could, you know, you're, you're in the club and you met the criteria. So you're, you can justify it. And you, you need that when you're doing this because you're scared. You, you don't want something bad to happen to your dog and you don't want to produce bad puppies and you're terrified of everyone's judgment. <laughs> and so it's really hard to do it outside of that black and white list and that little club of tight click 
friends who will defend you against the world, you know? So I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a crazy space. It's, it's been quite an interesting, uh, ride. <laughs> well, thank you for being so open about all of it. It's, yeah. um, it's good to talk about it. And I just, I, I hope more people can start feeling that it's okay to talk about these things and that it's okay to hear people say these things and to be accepting of, you know, approaches that are maybe not exactly the way you do it, but recognizing that the person is doing it with a good heart and with good intentions. Okay. I hope so. Hope I can oh, help. You have, a, you have a good heart and good intentions. <laughs> I love my dogs and I would never, I would never do anything if I, if I knew that it was going to hurt a dog or produce puppies that nobody wanted. I would never let that happen. And let me tell you, before we end, let me tell you the top two things that I think make an ethical breeder. Can I tell you that? Yes. I would number love to one, that. number one, the breeding dogs are treated well. That is the first thing you should make sure you find out that those dogs are not living in a barn in their own poop, that they have an attachment to a human of some kind, whether yeah. it's through sled dog work or being a pet on the couch they're connected to a human. Number two, the breeder will always take the puppies back and they stay connected their entire life. If that is true, then that breeder is going to be accountable to some extent, because if you're connected to those families forever and you're open and available and you're hearing if things are going wrong, then you're not just doing it for the money. There's no way, because that's a lifelong commitment to every dog you produce. And if you know those two things, you, that takes you a long way towards knowing the heart behind what's going on. And I think that those are the first two things I would put on my list, not health testing, not titles. Those are good. Those are important. We want to talk about that. But that when we're talking about ethics and morals and who's a good person, those first two tell you more than anything else. I like that as a, as a really solid starting point. Yeah. I, I know that that is not all there is to it. And I'm not saying that anybody who will do those two things is a good breeder. So I don't want to be quoted as saying that. I think that having really specific, important goals and doing testing and knowing what you're producing and doing it for a specific function is all really important. And all of the goals of the Functional Dog Collaborative, I agree with. But um, I'd like to see more dogs um, in those situations. I think it would eliminate a lot of the problems that we have with dogs being bred poorly if everybody did those first two things. Yeah. I think then, then it just collapses down to education, right? If people, right. right. Then, then it's just a question of, do people know what is the right thing to do? And, and do they have the access to the ability to do it? Like your example of, well, this test wasn't available to me during COVID. Um, well, right. or and for someone else, I don't have access to pen hip or I have to drive eight hours and I can't take that much time off work or, or what have you. Yeah. And then we could get into more of the subtlety because I wouldn't say that just because you don't have access that like always excuses everything. I mean, you, I've heard people say, well, I can't afford to do any health testing. So I, I mean, it gets complicated because does, if you yes. don't have the resources yes. to do a good job, then you need to examine whether you should be doing it. You know, yes. um, I think the reason that that second criteria that the people are they're tracking those puppies forever and they're taking them back and they're getting feedback is because if you're really developing a program, you're not going to get very far, take, you know, 
um, if you're not doing health testing, if you're willing to take puppies back, you're going to be getting them back. If you're doing a lousy job and you're going to slow yourself down pretty quick and say, Oh, what's going on? You know, I had four out of five (laughs) return their dogs, or I heard that they all had hip dysplasia or whatever. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Carolyn. This was fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for listening to me. I appreciate you. Feel free <laughs> I appreciate to you too. You can shut me up. <laughs> okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Hey, friends. Some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we have set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functionalbreeding. You can also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Merza. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs. Enjoy your dogs.